Well, this morning we are going to be studying through a prophetic passage of Scripture. If you've got your study guide out, you'll see that we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Now, in case you're not familiar with the term prophetic, let me just uh, describe that to you. A prophetic passage of Scripture is a passage of Scripture that is speaking about something that will happen at a later time. That time may be a few minutes later, it may be a few days later, a few months, or it could even be years later. In the case of Isaiah 53, it was six to seven hundred years, probably closer to seven hundred years, before this particular passage was ever fulfilled. And so we see that it's prophetic in that God gave inspiration to the prophet to speak his word, to tell what would take place at some point in time. Now, what is going to be uncovered in this particular passage is huge. I mean, this is, this is incredibly, incredibly important. As we take a look at these verses, I think you'll begin to understand that. Notice, if you will, at the top of your study guide, you'll see the verses listed. Isaiah, after receiving this from God, writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're going to be looking at a thought that I'm just going to give the title Common Ground. And I say Common Ground because I think as we move through, we're going to find that there is a lot of common ground here. There was common ground for those of which it was originally written to the children of Israel. But I believe that we're also going to find even 26, 2700 years later, there's still a great deal of common ground for us in this passage as well. So let's work through it. Four thoughts I want to give to you this morning. Number one, get ready to write. Because here in this verse, in fact, the first part of verse 4, we find immediately a common benefactor. A common benefactor. The word benefactor means a person who confers a benefit. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? A person who confers a benefit. One who confers a benefit on someone else. It's what we find in this passage. Even though this passage was written six to seven hundred years ago, Jesus had not even been thought about as far as being a real person, as far as walking on the earth is concerned. It still very much was talking about the Savior, Jesus Christ. It was revealing to us some thoughts about the Messiah that would one day come. Now here was common ground for the children of Israel because they knew the Messiah was coming. They were looking for Him. They were expecting Him. They were praying for Him. They were studying about Him. They wanted to know the Messiah when He came. And now Isaiah is laying out for them something that's very important, something that's very incredibly uh, significant to their lives about the Messiah. And the problem is they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. For Isaiah, as he's talking about the Messiah that's coming, one thing that's very notable was that this was not a prophecy of question. You know, well, this is kind of what I expect to happen. 
I'm not really positive, but this is kind of what I expect. God's given me this, and this is kind of what I expect to happen. But this was a prophecy of assurance. This is what God's given me, therefore you can rely upon it. You can expect it to happen just as I'm going to tell you. In fact, it was very important that it did happen just the way he told. Now, in this particular prophecy, because it was so far in the future, he wouldn't be affected by this one, but... And he gave a lot of prophecies, some of those that would occur soon after he gave them. For the fact of the matter is that if a prophet said that he was speaking on behalf of God and he laid out a prophecy and it did not happen exactly as he said it would, he was considered to be a false prophet. Therefore, not speaking on behalf of God. And the Bible says that he is to be taken out and stoned to death. So there was a lot riding on him being correct in his prophecy. There was a lot riding on him actually hearing from God and delivering that message to the people. And he delivered it exactly as God would give it. And in fact, it would come to pass in the exact way that he delivered the message. What he said about the Messiah is actually something that is somewhat mind-boggling, a little bit... Uh, unthinkable if you really stop and logically think through this because he said God himself is going to leave heaven's splendor and come to this earth where he will bear our griefs and carry our guilt he will literally lift that off of us and place it on himself he himself will carry our shame and our sorrow and our sickness and our guilt he will carry that for us all the way to the cross of Calvary where he will pay a price for that. It's an incredible thought. But here's where there was additional common ground for those who were among the children of Israel, but this was in a very negative sense. Because while they were hearing the prophet Isaiah say that the Messiah is coming and he's going to bear our weakness and he's going to bear our sorrows and he's going to bear our pain and he's going to bear our suffering and he's going to bear our sin, they couldn't see it that way. There's no way that they could accept that because in their mind, they were looking at a point when the Messiah would come to the earth and would rule and reign. So they were looking beyond where they were to what would happen someday, and it will happen someday. The Messiah will rule and reign here on the earth. But what they were missing was this dark valley at the cross. They were looking over it. They were looking beyond it. They weren't seeing the Savior come to die for the sin of mankind. They weren't seeing Him stretch out His arms on the cross of Calvary, even though time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament, Scripture pointed to that very thing taking place. And while they claimed to be knowledgeable of the Messiah, they claimed to be an understanding of who he was, who he would be, what he would look like, what he would do, they missed it completely. That one day Jesus would take our griefs and our shame and our sorrow to the cross of Calvary. To them it was unthinkable. To us, maybe for you, it certainly is for me, it's mind-boggling. That the Savior, God Himself, would come to carry my sin, would come to carry my shame and my guilt to the cross of Calvary. It's almost as if He was a pack mule. Maybe that's a horrible illustration, but let me explain what I mean. 
A pack mule is one that you can place whatever you want on it, and it's going to carry it for you. Uh, a while back, a few years ago, we had a team of people went to Peru, and as they were traveling up through the mountains, extreme heights, there was no way they could carry all their gear, so they had these pack mules that went with them, and they loaded them down with their equipment. Christ was loaded down with the shame and the guilt and the sorrow of mankind. All of mankind. It was placed upon his shoulders. And the incredible difference, though, between Christ and the pack mule, besides the very obvious that I don't need to point out, is that he did it willingly. For the mule, he probably doesn't have a lot of say in what he carries. But Jesus Christ not only submitted to it, but picked it up off of us and placed it on himself. What an incredible thought. That he would carry our shame. That he would carry our guilt. That he would suffer as a result of it. This is the common benefactor we're talking about. Now when you think about the common benefactor and all that he's done for us, one would think that the next logical step in this process would be to find the common praise for him, right? I mean, because look at all he's doing. He's, he's going to die for us. He's carrying the weight of our sin for us. He's going to take it to the cross. It will be nailed on the cross of Calvary with him. He's going to pay for it finally and fully and completely. One would think that the next step would be that the people would raise up in praise. Yes, he's going to do this for us. That there would be praise in the days of Isaiah as to what would take place. That there would be praise in the days of Jesus at what he had done. Look at what he's done for us. Look at what he's done for us. What an incredible thought. And that there would be praise from that time forward to our day and time and beyond for what he has done. But the problem is that we do not find listed in this prophecy, nor do we find it in the fulfillment of what is spoken here taking place, a common praise. But in fact, number two, what we find is a common contempt. A common contempt. Contempt means the state of being despised, dishonored, disgraced. The state of being despised, dishonored, and disgraced. That was what Jesus Christ faced. The second part of verse 4 says, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The entire verse. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We turned away from him in horror and contempt. We supposed that his suffering was that for what he had done himself. That God was finally punishing him for the sin that he had committed. You remember what the Pharisees said about him? Who does he think he is? Who does this man think he is that he thinks that he can forgive sin? In other words, he makes himself equal with God. Exactly who does he think he is? He eats with notorious sinners and, and disgusting people. He, he works on the Sabbath day. Surely he is a great sinner. They even said that he was filled with the devil. It was the only reason he could cast out demons. So in their minds, in what was looking forward 
The people who were actually there when Jesus Christ was there. Isaiah was looking and saying these people are actually going to think that he's suffering because of his own sin. That he's suffering because of what he has done. That he's so despised and he will suffer so much and so long because this is what he actually deserves. And yet Isaiah is conveying the message, no, we got it wrong. We got it wrong. We're totally wrong on this. The, the thought that Jesus Christ is dying because of his sin is totally wrong. He's dying because he's carrying my sin. He's dying and suffering because he's carrying the sin of the world upon his shoulders. So then that which should have brought the highest praise for him because it was such an important part of the work that he came to do was that which instead brought the greatest contempt for him. Can you imagine? Isaiah is looking at this now six, seven hundred years in advance. I don't know if he knew how long in advance this prophecy was coming to him or not. I doubt he knew that. But I can imagine in the mind of Isaiah, he was thinking, God, this cannot happen. This cannot possibly take place because we're looking for the Messiah. We're waiting for Him. We're expecting Him. We're studying so that we know Him. And you're saying that when He comes, we're going to despise Him? We're going to reject Him? The one that we have anxiously anticipated for so long. We will despise when He gets here. Once again, we find that common ground, don't we? Because certainly it was true for the people in Jesus' day that they despised Him. They rejected Him. And certainly it's even true for us in our day and time. That people in our day and time still reject the Savior. They still despise Him. That which should bring about the highest praise for Him is what makes people hate Him the most. It was a common contempt that was explained through the prophecy. But how important it was that Jesus suffer on the cross. How important it was that He not come to this earth simply to live the life of a king, but He come to serve and to sacrifice Himself for mankind. How vital it was. Because in suffering, in sacrificing, Jesus provided, number three, what we see in verse 5, the common antidote. The common antidote. Yesterday, in between study times, I flipped the TV on and I was trying to find, um, hoping to find some soccer from the Olympics and uh, it, it was just women playing and I thought that wasn't what I was looking for. I wanted to see the guys playing, so nothing against women playing soccer. I just happened to want to see the guys playing and some of you ladies play soccer and I've already stepped in that, so just forgive me and let's start over. Uh, 
Yesterday, I was hoping to see women play soccer and... Uh, okay, so forget that. But what I ended up watching on uh, the Weather Channel, they had... Oh, I can't even remember the, the name of the show, but You Think You Can Survive, I think was the name of it. And they were showing people that had snake bites. They, one lady was picking strawberries out of her garden and a, a, a rattlesnake bit her on the hand. And the important thing for anyone who's been bitten by a poisonous snake is that they immediately get an anti-venom. That they get the antidote pumped into them. They pump some of the venom into their body so that the body starts building an immunity to that poison. It was so vital, she's, they showed her hand and it was swelling, it was horrible looking. The same is true for us. The poison that runs through our system is sin. The Bible tells us that by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. And as a result of that sin, death followed along very closely because we've all sinned. Sin is rebellion against God. It's doing what God has told us not to do or not doing what God has told us to do. It's rebelling against His commandments. And as a result of this rebellion, we have all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And as a result, it is vital that we get the antidote to our sin. The only possible hope for for overcoming the sin, the only possible hope for removal of this poison in our lives is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Surely He has borne our grief. Surely He has carried our sorrow. Verse 5 tells us about this. It says, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. He was wounded. He was tormented. He was pierced through as a result of carrying our sin for our transgression. He was delivered for our offenses. The sense here is that He wasn't there suffering as a result of what He had done, as a result of His own sin, but He was suffering because of our transgressions, because of our rebellion against God. You find that same thought flowing through Scripture. He was bruised. He was broken to pieces. He was crushed. The most severe inward and outward sufferings are inferred here. He was crushed under the weight of the sin. He was crushed under the suffering of the cross for our sake. He carried our iniquities there. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. The chastisement by which our peace would be effected, the chastisement by which our peace would be secured, was laid upon Him. Chastisement means punishment given by God because of a crime committed against God. Punishment. The punishment that I deserved for my sin was placed upon Jesus so that I might have peace. What an incredible concept. Because I had rebelled against God, because I had broken His commandments, because I had lived a life in my own way, for my own pleasures, for my own desires, God put the chastisement, His punishment upon His precious Son so that I might have peace. Peace. 
Think about that for a second. Peace. Peace in this life. Because I'm no longer under the condemnation of my sin. Peace and death because I know when I leave this world I will step into eternal life in the presence of Jesus Christ. And peace through eternal life because I know I will forever be with the Lord. Peace is given to me because my punishment, that which was required, was placed upon Jesus Christ. It's an incredible concept. By His stripes, we are healed. By His stripes. The Bible talks about the person of Jesus Christ after His beatings, the suffering that He was undergoing on His way to the cross. The Bible says that he was beaten so severely that he was barely recognizable as a person. Not simply as Jesus, but as a person. His face would have been swollen, his back sliced to ribbon. It would have been a mass of humanity. But thank God, Jesus was willing to suffer that way. You see, suffering is required for sin. Somebody has to have the chastisement placed upon them. God, in His remarkable love and kindness and mercy for me, looked down through the corridors of history to see that there would be no way, no way that I could contain and abstain or, or, or take up on me the suffering, the chastisement of Almighty God for my sin. There's no way because I'm not pure in heart and therefore I would suffer for all of eternity and never satisfy the dead, never satisfy God's wrath. And God, in His kindness, brought His Son to the earth. Jesus willingly went to the cross, carried my sin for me, placed it on Himself, and stretched out His hands in suffering and in agony and in betrayal. And there Jesus paid the price in full, complete. Nothing else needs to be done on His part. And in doing so, he provided a common antidote. In fact, the only antidote for my sin. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other route. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough. You can't do enough. The only way to eternal life is through the cross of Calvary. Through the suffering of Jesus Christ where He shed His blood to pay the price of my sin. To satisfy the anger and the wrath of Almighty God upon my sin. Jesus provided the antidote. The passage then brings us to the fourth and final thought. And that is that of the common theme. The common theme. It's a common theme not only to this passage. Not only do we see it in the Old Testament. But we also see this common theme run throughout the entire Bible. Verse 6 lays it out for us. 
says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have gone astray. The common ground here is that we are all sinners. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all have gone astray. One man's sin entered in the world. Therefore, we all became sinners because we have all sinned. We have all inherited the sin nature that was passed down through the bloodline of Adam. And we are all sinners, whether we are people who have broken God's law in small ways or we've broken it in huge ways. It really doesn't matter. The law has been broken. Therefore, we do not qualify to enter heaven. Therefore, we deserve the wrath and judgment of Almighty God upon us. And yet Jesus lifted that up off us and placed it on Himself and went to the cross. Our iniquity, our sin, our rebellion, our shame was placed upon Jesus Christ. So the theme of the Bible, the sickness and suffering of mankind can only be relieved by the mercy and sacrifice of Jesus. In this passage we find a common benefactor who although he should have received common praise instead received common contempt. But it was through his suffering and through his death that he provided a common antidote for the poison that runs through our lives. And therefore fulfilled the common theme of the Bible. That even though we have strayed from God, we have run from Him. It is the blood of Jesus Christ and the working of God in our lives that brings us to wholeness. And brings us to forgiveness. And gives us abundant life here and eternal life hereafter. So what do we do with this information? You know, it is my thought that if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today you have seen a very clear picture of what He has done just for you. You've seen a very clear picture of His sacrifice so that you can have eternal life. So what do you do with that information? In just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to stand. The ladies are going to come to the instruments. Jason will come to sing. And we're going to open a time that we refer to as the invitation. Where if you do not know Christ as your Savior, what I invite you to do at that moment, please, please listen to me. What I invite you to do at that moment is just make your way to the aisle that's closest to you and meet me right here at the front. You say, Tom, that's hard. It is. That first step is hard. The rest of them get a whole lot easier. But once you get here, here's my promise. I'm not going to try to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out in front of the crowd. I'm not going to call out your name. It's not about 
recognition for us. It's simply about introducing you to the person of Jesus Christ in a fuller and more complete way. And we would love to do that. So when we stand in a few minutes and the opportunity for you comes, would you just make your way as soon as you hear the music start and I give you the invitation, would you just make your way to the aisle and come and meet me right now? Don't wait. For others, I think the, the response to this information is that we hear once again of the sacrifice of Christ which reminds us of His love for us and once again draws us back to the center of His will. Because I know that some of us have strayed away from that. I know how this particular passage affected me this week. Is it reminded me of things that were going on in my life that have no business being there. And I was reminded of how God sacrificed His Son to pay the price of that stuff that I was doing, the sin that I was engaged in. And I can't help but believe that I'm probably not the only one who's in that situation. And so the response to this message for you would be to say, God, I am sorry. Forgive me. I confess my sin to you. Here it is. I lay it out before you. Not that I'm informing you, but I want you to know that I acknowledge it. I know what it is. For others, maybe God is directing you to be part of our church family. This morning, you want to just come meet me at the front as well and start that process. Allow me to walk you through it. For others, maybe as we saw at the beginning of our service, the celebration time of baptism is something that you've never done. You've know, you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, but you've never been obedient in this area of life. Can I tell you that if you are a child of God and you've never been baptized, you're living in disobedience. You can sugarcoat it any way you want to. The truth of the matter is, you are living in disobedience to God. And you need to take care of this matter. And so today, you would just step out, meet me at the front, and say, Tom, I want to get this started. I want to start the process. However God's working in your life, maybe it's something I've mentioned, maybe it's not. But the call now is for you to respond to the message. Would you do what God's calling you to do?